5, and I'm just going to start reading uh, now. Uh, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, forever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray to hear what you have for us this morning. Plan it deeply, God, that it may crowd out the thorns, that it may crowd out the weeds, life's worries, riches, and pleasures, God, and that our hearts would be fruitful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. We'll see that word soul today, uh, also in verse 20 of Psalm 25 and in verse 9 of Psalm 26. We learned last week what it means to lift up our soul to idols, to put our trust in them, to look to other things for our lifting up our soul to those things. Twenty-five, uh, Psalm 25, 20 says, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. And again, we see that idea of trust associated with what we are to do with our souls. 26.9 says, Do not gather, do not take away my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men. Important things are souls. This is the eternal part of us. This is the part of us that was cut off from God because of sin, but is made alive in Christ.
Matthew 16, starting in verse 24. And if you need a Bible, uh, there's some on the back table or someone will bring you one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life or his soul will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels. Then he will reward each according to his works. What could you give in exchange for your soul? If you had to purchase your soul, how much would you have to amass to purchase it? What would the cost be? And it's not so much what we would have to do to buy our souls. It's how cheaply we give them away. It's how cheaply we let them slip through our fingers based on the stuff that's around us and the things that we want. What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What's the whole world to you? What's that set of things, right? Remember math, right? You'd have a set of stuff and it was in parentheses or some bracket or something. And then there was, there was a set that had nothing in it. That was the empty set. What is in null? What is... What's in the set of the whole world for you? All the things that you could think right now, like, oh, if I had all those, life would be perfect. That's what you may be selling your soul for. That may be what you're giving it up for. And none of it's worth it. None of it's worth it. Some of us love the end of verse 27, right? He will reward each according to his works. You that, you know, love doing stuff. Yes, God's going to recognize my works. He's going to reward me for my works. I am good. So much better than other people. Works. Love it. Others like me say, ooh, boy. Works. I won't get any reward. I start weighing my good versus my bad, right? Fortunately, God defines his work for us. John chapter 6, if you just turn a little bit towards the back of your Bible from Matthew. John, one of the disciples of Jesus, writing in his gospel the things that the Holy Spirit put on his heart to put down for us in posterity. Jesus is speaking to a crowd that he had fed, and they came and found him. And uh, in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So they're following him because they want more food. He says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, 
what shall we do that is the work? What is the labor, right? Because Jesus had said, do not labor for, but labor for the food that endures. So what do we do? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God. This is what he calls you to. He'll reward you according to your works, according to your faith in Jesus, according to that holding on, sticking with him, going to him again and again and again. But the one that God requires is to believe in his son. Don't wander from that. When you start thinking about the works themselves as opposed to the man himself, stop wandering. Stop letting your brain go. Bring yourself back to the Lord Jesus. Ashamed is another word we see multiple times today. In verse 2, in verse 3, and in verse 20. To be ashamed, let me not be ashamed. Bush is the word in Hebrew. It means to pale, to be disconcerted, to be disappointed. And you can think of a person ashamed and the blood just draining from their face in a situation or something happens that they didn't expect. Let, let me not be ashamed. Don't let the blood drain from my face. Don't let me be surprised. Don't let me be disconcerted about what's going on around me. The more we know God's word, the more we know his character, the more we know his ways, the less likely we are to pale before circumstances and situations, before outcomes that we don't expect. Understanding who God is from his word, understanding his attributes, there'll be a whole lot, a lot, a whole lot less surprise for us in life. You want to see one of the ultimate examples of someone turning pale, just write this down. Go read 1 Samuel 25. See what happened between David, Abigail, and Nabal. 1 Samuel 25. Indeed, let those be ashamed to deal treacherously without cause. Treacherous without cause. We see in society, and I wasn't trying to be cute in doing this, we see society trying to stretch the cause clause all the time. You are like this because. I am like this because. Do not join in with the culture's definition of not being responsible for your actions so that anything goes. Don't join in with them. Be understanding. Strengthen the weak. Look to those that need help, but always go back to your trust in God to fashion your actions. Don't tell yourself, don't allow what society tells you is okay for you to say, that's my definition of what's okay. Does God have a very high standard? Do we meet that standard? Accepting Christ. Christ puts us over that standard in the sight of God 
in a continuous fashion from the day that we accept him. We do not measure up, but we don't need to give ourselves excuses for not going towards, right? None of the... <laughs> I, my goal is to inspire you toward more and more work, more and more action, not to beat you up for what you haven't done, not to beat me up for what I haven't done. I, have, I do plenty of that in my own mind and in my own life. Because society says something's okay, our standard doesn't change. And again, going back to understanding God, who he is, his attributes, is going to enable you to go, I don't want to go down that path. And when you start down that path to go, I got to turn around. And he's right there in your repentance. And he's right there to meet you. Verses 4 through 7, this is what we need. Showing, teaching, leading, remembering mercies, and loving kindness. David asks God to remember these things, but he's, he's reinforcing his own understanding of who God is. When we say, God, remember this, it's not suddenly like, a, oh, yeah, I almost forgot about Skip. I almost forgot to have loving kindness towards Skip. He never forgets those things. He asks us to remind him because he knows that's how we remind us. That's how we don't forget. We need all of these things, the showing, the teaching, the lead does remember us or consider us us. What defines that? His mercy, his goodness are the things that define how he feels towards us. And we need to remember them. Now, I think verses 8 through 15 are just incredible. So it says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, so why does he do what he does? Because he is good and upright. Why does God do what he does? Because he is good and upright, not vengeful and spiteful not trying to keep you down, not trying to keep you in line. He gives us a lot of free reign, doesn't he? That's an awful long leash. If we're attached to a leash, it's an awful long one. Not vengeful and spiteful because he is good and upright. Therefore, why does he do what he does? Because he's good and upright. Therefore, he teaches, look what he does here, he teaches sinners in the way. Now we know this from the New Testament. We know he gives his spirit to convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. It's going on all the time. He teaches sinners in sin through his word, through his people, through his Holy Spirit. Because he's good and upright. All the people you love, all the people you care about, he's constantly after them because he's good and he's upright. Then it says the humble, he guides in justice and teaches his way, not just the way, not the general path, but his way. So teaches sinners in the way, the humble, he guides in justice and teaches his way. Then we have a little aside here in verses 10 and 11, the big statement. 
All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Is that how you feel about all the paths of the Lord? (laughs) Mercy and truth, every single one. To such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So we can... We can feel here, right? Well, I haven't kept enough. I haven't kept enough, so his paths towards me are not that. His paths towards me are bad. His paths towards me are corrective. His paths towards me are are, um, uh, punitive, right? So kept, and kept here to such as keep, is not to share those who are guarding, preserving, protecting his covenant and his testimonies. So it's not keeping every jot and tittle of the law. That is not what enables you to have all the paths of the Lord, mercy and truth. And it's, it's to you. It's your understanding of his paths that's fashioned by what? By you keeping, guarding, preserving his covenant and his testimonies. What does that mean? Knowing them. Going back to them over and over again. Sharing them with other people. And suddenly God's paths start to become to you. In your knowledge, in your understanding, mercy and truth. Instead of something to be avoided. Instead of something that God wants to crush you with, he makes his paths mercy and truth. Now we've seen what he does for sinners, and we've seen what he does for the humble. Now look what he does for those who fear him. Verse 12, he shall teach them in the way he chooses. So sinners have been taught the way, the humble have been guided in justice and been taught his way, but the man who fears the Lord, he shall teach in the way he chooses. God will show you how he makes decisions. God will bring you into his counsel and take you deeper being a man who fears the Lord. Look what the Lord, the fear of the Lord invites you into. Verse 13, dwelling in prosperity. It's defined as goodness, dwelling in goodness and inheriting the earth. Who do we know inherits the earth from the mouth of Jesus? The meek, right? So part of the fear of the Lord involves meekness. Search it out, understand it. It says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. How amazing. The man who fears him, he he will teach in the way he chooses. And the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And he will show them his covenant. All of these things preceding from the fear of the Lord. We have got to get, we have got to understand fear of the Lord, not seeing it as negative. We know right now it's marked by meekness. That's a part of it. 
We've got to get it and grasp the fear of the Lord. There are amazing things that follow from that. Absolutely amazing things that follow from that. We have to address fear over and over and over again. After the fall, uh, Genesis 3.10, the first human emotion I think that we see, we see it a, a um, the lack of, there was a lack of emotion, but the first time it talks about human emotion is after the fall, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Fear right from the very beginning. And we get it all mixed up, and we fear all sorts of things instead of learning to fear God. Look at the incredible blessing that you get from that. He's kind enough to teach sinners his way. He brings the humble in, and he teaches them his way. But he's got more for those that would fear him, that would understand what fear of the Lord means. This is what God wants to bring us into. If we're going to fear, let's do it right. Fear him who can. In Matthew 10, 28, and Luke 4, 5, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, the right fear of God. He teaches sinners in the way. He teaches his way to the humble. And to those that fear him, he teaches the way he chooses. Each gets successively more and more from him. The secret of the Lord is with, and he will show them his covenant. How amazing that God does these things for us. The idea of verse 15, we've seen previously in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Here he says, he shall pluck my feet out of the net because my eyes are ever toward him. There's a surety that falls on us when we keep God before us. There's a surety that we have in our lives when we keep God in front of us. Even though our feet may be in the net, we're that close to captured. Even though we may have been drug away by the lion or the bear. Fancy. Even though these things, even though we may be, according to everybody else, beyond repair, beyond saving. Remembering God, keeping him before us, gives us that surety that he will come through. Now, it may not be what you want. His coming through may not be what you want. But it is the best thing for each of us when he does it. Verses 16 through 19, it seems that David kind of has eyes on God. He's trying to remind himself of the truth, but his thoughts are on his afflictions, his troubles, his distress, his pain his sins, and his enemies. And this is a fight that we will be in repeatedly. This is a fight that we're going to go through over and over and over again. Focused on God, focused on God, and, you know, our eyes kind of turn. <laughs> I was feeding the dog the other day, and um, there was some food, you know, over here. 
and he's he's looking at me, and I see his eyes going. <laughs> like he had to keep checking to make sure the food was I don't think he wanted to give me his attention at all. He wanted the food. We want to keep our eyes on God. We want to set him before us, but there's things that get in our peripheral vision. Keep your eyes on God. Know that he is going to take care of those things, that he's going to give you what you need to get through those situations, that surety that he gives us. But we're going to have that fight over and over and over again, and our, and our focus is going to turn back into these things. So in verses 20 through 22, we get the solution here. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Remember who we wait for. And pray for bigger things than yourself. Here David goes from just thinking about himself to all of Israel. Pray for bigger things than yourself. Pray for the church. Pray for the nation. Pray for the world. Pray for big things and take your eyes off yourself because the things that you pray that are true for them are the things that are true for you and God and what he wants to do for you. Interestingly here in, uh, in verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Different word than is used uh, above when it talks about us keeping his covenant and his testimonies. Here it's shamer. Again, guarding, observing, giving heed, protecting, saving. But the point is this, his keeping is different than ours. The keeping that God requires of us is different than the keeping that he provides to us. It is so much greater. It is so much greater. Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my heart and my try my mind and my heart, for your loving kindness is before my eyes. What is he setting before his eyes? And I have walked in your truth. I've not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I've hated the assembly of evildoers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. It seems like a quid pro quo we got going here, right? I did this, God, so you should do that. But then we see faith again here. I have trusted. I shall not slip. What is David saying here? Is he making a declaration of his righteousness and the treatment that he deserves from God? 
God, I did this. I put in my quarter. Give me my gumball. No. In verse 11, he repeats the phrase, and now he says, I'll walk in my integrity, but he's saying, I need you to redeem me. I need your mercy. I can't accomplish. My own integrity doesn't get me these things. You, God, do the work. I need you, God. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You didn't deserve these things from God. If we go back to Psalm 25 and think about the attributes of the man who fears God, does David qualify? Did he show David his covenant? He showed it to him and he gave him a new one further than the covenants that he had given before. He would have an heir on the throne forever who inherits the earth, the son of David, Jesus and his co-heirs, us. Fear of God comes from understanding his attributes. Why can David say, examine me and mind? Why can he say those things? Because he understands God's loving kindness. The attributes of God enable us to say, God, examine me. Prove me. Try my mind and my heart. If we don't understand the attributes of God, we don't ask him to do that. We say, I prefer to be left alone, please. I prefer to just work things out by myself. When we understand that all of that is fashioned by his loving kindness, then we say, God, do as you three. David writes, thy loving kindness is better than life. Better than life. All the things that I would be afraid of that God would allow to happen if he proved me, if he tested me, if he examined me, if he tried my mind and my heart, his loving kindness is worth more than the worst that I could think would happen. And his loving kindness proves he's not trying to do worst to me. He is trying to bring good to me. David wasn't perfect in this. We won't be perfect in this. But walking in his truth and understanding his attributes changes our actions. Verses 4 through 6, you don't want to be with idolatrous people. You don't want to be with hypocrites or congregate with evildoers and the wicked. God keeps us in the world to influence those around us. He doesn't take us out. He doesn't take us out of the world except in protection, in our lives being hidden with Christ and God. But he leaves us here to be an influence But we're not our place. Our place is with his people. And our thoughts are with him rather than this with these. When we understand his attribute, it changes what we say. We use our voice, verse 7, for thanksgiving and telling of his wondrous works. Walking in his truth and understanding his attributes Verse 8, it changes what we desire. We love the house of God. We love his people and his glory as we grow in understanding his attributes. Verses 9 and 10, it reminds us of who is in control, 
who can take our soul away from sinners? Be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. It reminds us of who's in control. Fear the one who can. Verse 11, it reminds us of what our part is and what he's responsible for. I walk, he shows mercy. I walk, and he shows mercy. Verse 12, it reminds us of where we stand in an even place and what our purpose is, which is to bless the Lord. Psalm 27. I didn't give you time to turn to Psalm 26. I'll give you time to turn to Psalm 27. I'll enjoy a sip of water. We've got two songs within this psalm that many of us know well. Verse 1, the Lord is the light of my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? All right, we sing that one off often here. <clears throat> And then verses 4 and 5, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after all the days of my life, to behold the beauty, the delightfulness of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me on rock. One thing. One thing. We need to boil our desire down to one thing. Let's create a new set. Right? Here's the set of all of our trying to think of a nice word to use for it. Stuff. Is one thing, one thing that I desire of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Whatever it is that we're after, let's remember to boil it down. Let's remember to boil it down. So what struck me about Psalm 27 and and you see this throughout the Psalms, right? You know, so we we've done I don't think we've done well, a couple at the beginning are not specifically attributed to David, but we in they are in the New Testament, but not here in the Psalms. But as we're going through these Psalms, you see um, you know, there's stuff specifically about him and his situation. There's stuff about the nation of Israel, there's stuff about us, and there's stuff about Jesus. Like, it all just keeps getting kind of layered in on one another. And, you know, we know what's about Jesus because we see it in the New Testament and we understand it, you know, from reading it from that perspective. And again, we see these things impacting us. And what struck me about Psalm 27, David is stating many things that God has done and will do. And he's asking, he's also asking God to do certain things and these are things that God would do in David's life, and they're things that he'll do in our life. But for several of these things, at a particular point in Jesus' life, the answer was no. 
Verse 5 says, In the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. In the time of Jesus' trouble, he was left exposed. He had to drink the cup of God's wrath. He wasn't hidden, and he was exposed to all the trouble that we deserve. Verse 9 says, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation, when my father and my mother forsake me then the Lord will take care of me. What are the words that we hear from the mouth of Jesus on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 12, false witnesses rose up against him and he was delivered to the will of his adversaries. What amazing faith Jesus had to have in that state of being forsaken in taking the wrath required against all wickedness of all mankind over all time to not lose heart and to endure what he did. Now, verse 6 is true of him like it is of no other. And now my head shall be lifted up. It shall be lifted up in honor above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy, meaning with joyous shouts in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Again, these things, true of David, true of us, true of the nation of Israel, but especially true of Jesus. It gives us a sense of the joy in heaven when Jesus came with his own blood to purchase men back to God from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Winning all of these things for us putting the, the victor's crown on our heads, doing for us what we could not do. So the things that couldn't be true of him would be true for us. His beloved, his objects of special affection and relationship, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our lives, to not be forsaken to behold his beauty and inquire in his temple, to have lives that are hidden with Christ and God, to not be turned away in anger or forsaken, to be led in a smooth path, 
we're going to take uh, communion, so I'll have Tom and Grace come back. Uh, Grace is somewhere. Somebody find Grace. I'll keep talking because she gets here. Um, I'll leave three times in Psalm 25, 3, 5, and 21. It says wait. And then twice here in um, the last verse of Psalm 27, it says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. I say, wait on the Lord. And that's what we're to do. We're to wait on the Lord continually. Jesus, um, you know, we talk about things that are true and not true of us, this kind of interplay that we see in the Psalms. And uh, sorry about that. I'll take my words from you. Um, verse 2 says this. When the wicked came up, when the wicked came against me, to eat up my flesh. My enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. So David says this about himself, that God saved him when his enemies came up to devour his flesh. God caused his enemies to stumble and fall. Eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. You have no life. David wanted to avoid this thing happening to him by his enemies. And Jesus says, come to me and take what you need. Come and eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Devour that you may be made from my enemy into my friend. That peace between you and I, between God and us, would ensue. This is what the Lord has done for us. Wait on him. Be of good courage. Wait, I say, on the Lord.